Well, good evening, LCM. Good evening. Man, we have Indonesians in the air and inbound. Welcome to our special session on the book of Ezra, Nehemiah. We began this study together in June, 19 weeks ago. The work that we put forth for your consideration represents more than 190 hours of team study while the six of us were gathered together at Elim to prepare each week. Each week, we did our best to summarize some of our findings into notes that would further your own studies. On average, we produced 33 pages of typed notes per session, which when combined is way over 640 pages on Ezra and Nehemiah. Tonight will be our 19th session, and we'll bring the audio recordings, which comprise 38 hours of teaching, to an end. It is our hope that the effort we put into this study will benefit both you and those coming after you in future generations. The 600-plus pages of notes include over 300 footnoted slides that are intended to provide a starting place for future teachings of this amazing, amazing work. Considering everything that we included, it is even more profound to consider the larger volume that we were not able to include. Yeah. The scripture is a spring of living water whose depths are without limit. Come on, man. As Paul said in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For this reason, we are inviting you to continue the study of this book throughout your lifetime. This will allow you to add new treasures to the old and amass a storehouse of revelation that you can share with those coming after you. Our team knew that any study that we undertook would, at the very best, just be a starting place. Yeah. Psalm 40 was often on our minds. Psalm 40, verse 5. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders you have done. The things you planned for us, no one can recount to you. Were I to speak and tell of them, they would be too many to declare. That's a powerful language, isn't it? Tonight, we're not going to attempt to reteach any of the material that has already been covered. Rather, we are going to remind you of some some of the things that you have already learned, and then we're going to suggest an action that should be considered. Amen. Is that fair? After all, this is the fun thing about biblical study. Once you start uncovering spiritual gems, the lavish revelation then has to be considered so that it serves the purpose of turning your faith into present-day action. John said it this way. John 21, verse 25. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. John said earlier in John 20, verse 30 as well. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
So saints, let's pray that the work we have put forth up to this point will provide a springboard into new depths of study for you and those who will hear your teachings and find life in his name. Oh, yeah. Additionally, let's ask Adonai to reveal to you what actions must now be taken as a result of what we have learned. Amen. Paul Rosales, will you pray for us? Mighty God, Lord, we love you. Father, we say it's because of you that we are here tonight. God, we're putting our trust in you that you're the one who will sanctify us through and God. Lord, we're asking you to come and meet us in this place, Lord, that you would refresh our hearts, Lord, that you would refresh our minds, mighty God. Lord, that you would remind us of what we have been taught. God, we thank you for the pastors and teachers, Lord, that are laboring in the patterns that the pastors and teachers of the past have, Lord God. That they are giving us all that they have, Lord. Father, we don't want to be uh, irresponsible with what we've been given, God. We want to go and put it into practice. Lord, we want to teach it to our families, God. We want to see it perpetuated from generation to generation. God, that you would receive the glory through your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Revelation demands a response. Our goal is to go back over some of the things that you already know and point to areas that may benefit your future study. But by the end of the evening, the revelation that you've received will demand of you a response. So throughout this Bible study tonight, be asking yourself, what must I now do based on what I know? Amen? Look, for many of us, the study started out with the most basic of revelation, that Ezra and Nehemiah were not actually two books, but were one book. You probably remember this slide. Although the books of Ezra and Nehemiah appear as two separate works in our English Bibles, they were originally two parts of a singular work, and they should be studied together as a single whole. Not only is ancient Jewish tradition clear about this, the division into two books being probably an innovation by the Christian church, but more importantly, the contents of the books themselves demonstrated. In particular, the second half of Nehemiah serves as a climax to all that has gone before, not least the work of Ezra, as his prominence in Nehemiah 8 makes clear. Although Nehemiah 1.1 obviously starts a new section of the work, it marks no more of a break in the narrative than does Ezra 7.1, where Ezra himself is first introduced. So in a time when segmentation is the order of the day rather than connections, it has been instructive to see the continuity of Ezra and Nehemiah. Yeah. Hasn't it? Yes. Furthermore, the book was viewed as a singular book by the Jewish people from the time of its writing up until 1455 AD. It has only been about 500 years that the book of Ezra and Nehemiah was split into two books, and this practice is destructive to the concepts that you have learned. Wow. Let's look at our next slide together. You guys will recognize what's on the left of your screen in that timeline. I want to point your attention to the right side, though, with some new comments and some new revelation that you now have. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah covers around 130 years. This is the last period of biblical history prior to the advent of the Newer Testament era. This is the backdrop 
and historical setting for Judaism in the first century. The men detailed in this work were likely viewed as recent historical heroes by the authors of the Newer Testament. Finally, Haggai, Zechariah, and that's right, Malachi, all fit within the scope of Ezra and Nehemiah. Yeah. So it is entirely possible that metaphors like the wild olive shoots utilized by Paul in Romans 11, they were drawn from the Sukkot celebrations in Nehemiah 8. These kind of connections are far better, a far better pathway to understanding the text than the postulations of the theologians living in the 15th and 16th century AD. That's true. On a side note, it is possible that Paul saw the inclusion of both olive branches and wild olive branches in the Sukkah of Nehemiah 8 as a hint regarding to the inclusion of Gentiles into the redemptive structure of Adonai's plan. Ooh, come on. This possibility becomes particularly intriguing when realize, you realize that Nehemiah 8 and Romans 11 are the only two mentions of wild olive branches. The only two in the entire Bible. And both chapters deal with the redemptive structure of Adonai. Saints, we're going to keep moving, but those of you who are good students, that is a gem for you to go dig out yourself. We even gleaned understanding into the purpose of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah from the names given to these Jewish men on the eighth day of their lives. You'll remember that Ezra means help, and Nehemiah means Yahweh comfort. When you're thinking this, remember names in Hebrew, in the Hebrew culture, are more than just an accumulation of phonetic sounds. They have a prophetic quality about them. Yeah. Prophetic qualities that prove true in the lives of Ezra and Nehemiah for the nation of Israel. These men displayed the help and comfort of Yahweh to the nation of Israel, just as their God-given names would suggest. Y'all staying awake? You staying with us? Well, you already found a backdrop for Romans 11. You already found the hermeneutic key to understanding what it means to be grafted into the structure of God's redemptive plan. Perhaps this slide will mean more to you now that you understand the larger context for the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. The importance of Ezra for the creation and formation of what came to be known as rabbinic Judaism cannot be overestimated. According to the Bible, Ezra was the one who brought the Torah to the returning exiles, read and interpreted it publicly, and oversaw the people's solemn recommitment to its teachings. Thus, Ezra is like a second Moses. The rabbis imply this by stating Ezra was sufficiently worthy that the Torah could have been given through him if Moses had not preceded him. Ezra is both an authoritative scribe and priest, as well as a kind of proto-rabbi, who also has the authority of a prophet. His legal innovations are not seen as such, but are depicted as proper interpretation of eternally binding Mosaic law. This principle is at the heart of rabbinic Judaism, and his authenticity is never called into question within rabbinic Judaism. It is arguable that no figure in biblical history is more important to the 12 <laughs> tribes than Moses. But Ezra functions like a second Moses in the history of Israel. Remember, the two stories have many parallels 
that range from plundering the nations that held them captive to receiving the Torah and instruction again. It was inspiring to realize that the entire story of Ezra and Nehemiah was initiated by the Spirit of God, acting on individuals, and the story came to completion in the same manner. Namely, the Spirit of Adonai helped them finish what he began in them. Remember Ezra 1.21. This slide says, All who were willing, as remember going through these four translations in Ezra 1.21. The ESV said, And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him. Yeah. The NASB said, Everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him. In the Amplified, And they came, each one whose heart stirred him up, and whose spirit made him willing. And the CJB, And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit made him willing. The process started by the spirit, eventually stalled because of human weakness and failings. Of course, you learned that Haggai and Zechariah showed up, and the spirit stirred the people again. Hallelujah. Stirred them up to complete what had been started. This was amazing insight into the book of Philippians when it stated this in Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Yeah, Amen. Do you realize not only are you getting the background of Romans 11, but now you're understanding Paul's statements in the way that he meant them to be understood in Philippians? Yeah. yeah. So not only does Ezra and Nehemiah present Ezra like a second Moses, but the Newer Testament repeatedly utilizes this motif to aid in our understanding of the presentation of Jesus as Christ. I want you to consider John 1.16 to begin with. For from the fullness we have all received, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Keep that in your mind. Grace upon grace continuing from Moses, then coming through Jesus. Luke 9.30 And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. And spoke of his departure, or his exodus in Greek, his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. See, this makes it particularly important to recognize the Moses and Exodus parallels in the biblical historic period immediately preceding the time of Jesus. In other words, to understand the way that Jesus is presented, you have to first understand the way that Nehemiah was like a second Moses. You would never see him in contrast with Moses. You would see him as a blessing coming after Moses, which is exactly how Jesus is presented. Look at the Bible knowledge commentary slide. Cyrus Edict also instructed the returnees' neighbors in Persia to give them the equivalent of money, meaning silver and gold, material goods, livestock, and free will offerings. The free will offerings were for the temple, And the other gifts were for the people themselves. This is reminiscent of the exodus from Egypt when God miraculously took the nation out of bondage and had the Egyptians aid them with gifts of silver, gold, and clothing. Now God was effecting a new exodus, 
again bringing his people who had been in bondage back into the land of promise, much as he had done under Moses and Joshua. The people had been in bondage to Babylon because of their failure to keep their covenantal obligations, which Moses had given them during the first exodus. Once more, God was miraculously working in the life of the nation. When you consider this backdrop in the forefront of your mind, it is likely that you will come to the conclusion that the primary ministry of Jesus is to bring his nation out of the bondages of slavery and deliver them into the prosperity that accompanies true Torah obedience in the kingdom of God. Do you see how understanding Moses helps you understand Nehemiah? And understanding Moses and Nehemiah helps you understand Jesus. The further you get away from this pattern, the more you misunderstand the king that you claim to serve. Look, for many, these studies will be mere intellectual stimulation. Some will see them simply as an occasion to attack various conclusions that we arrived at. That is something that is very easy to do when no conclusions of your own were put forth in advance. However, we see the organization and path of our foundation studies as being aided by Adonai for our enrichment. Perhaps you will remember this slide. Check out the path of our studies. In August of 2019, we began 1st and 2nd Samuel. During that time, we discovered the nature of the Davidic king from Judah that would unite all facets of Israel and deliver them into an eternal monarchy. Then in January of 2020, we began 1st and 2nd Chronicles. During that time, we became better acquainted with the purpose of genealogies, enumerating specific promises to Israel as a specific and identifiable people called Israel. Fast forward to January of 2021, we began Jeremiah. During that time, we developed a better understanding of the New Covenant and the Book of Consolation that requires both houses of Israel. Say both houses. Both houses. Both houses of Israel to be united in salvation. Then November of 2021, we began Daniel. During that time, we began to understand the role of the Gentile beastly powers, those that would be used to achieve Adonai's purposes in conforming his nation into his image. And finally, March of 2022, we began Esther. During that time, our understanding of the Persian Empire was revolutionized, and we saw the multifaceted ways in which Adonai is always at work in the nation of Israel to achieve his purpose for them. So now that we've finished Ezra and Nehemiah, it is clear, say clear, clear, that Adonai wants us to understand his eternal commitment to bring help and comfort to his nation that is being delivered from bondage to slavery and will be made whole in heart, soul, and strength. This is abundantly clear from the organization of the Tanakh, the the organization of the three waves of return and the fact that the 12 tribes are spoken of as a singular nation throughout Ezra, Nehemiah. Look at our next slide. 
So 82 proofs that Jews and Israel are the same. <laughs> there is no special significance to the term Israel when used in contrast or in opposition with other names, other than the fact that it conveys the idea of the majority of the nation of Israel as compared with a smaller body of the same nation. In no case does it mean the two parts of the same nation are two different kinds of people. This is from Dake's annotated reference Bible. Look, we tried, and we believe that we succeeded. Yeah. We did. Yeah. To illustrate that the terms Israel and Judah are used synonymously throughout Ezra, Nehemiah, and to indicate all 12 tribes in each usage. This is an important historical key as any student approaches the Newer Testament. The 12 tribes are seen as one nation yeah. under the administration of a Judean government. What's the Hebrew word for one? Ichad. The people gathered as Ichad man, one man. The Hebrew word for people is inclusive of the whole community. See Ezra 1.3. The whole clause emphasizes the fact that the entire community assembled or came together for a common purpose and with a common concern. See Nehemiah 8.1. The 12 tribes are, in fact, one nation. Even better than that are the times when the nation is seen acting as one man. This is a hint towards the prophetic destiny of the nation that will be renewed in the heart, soul, and body of Messiah. Unfortunately, the efforts of Adonai to conform his nation into his image have been vigorously opposed in every arena. The theologians of our day are nearly as hostile as the physical combatants of Ezra and Nehemiah's day. <laughs> Let's take a look at some hostile settings. By this time, the returned remnant would find the hostility of their new neighbors awakened. Only surprised at first to hear of their return, afterwards inclined to ridicule and despise them when they saw them settling down in their old habitations as a distinct and separate people. These strangers would begin in various ways to show their dislike and perhaps to murmur their threats. In this condition of danger, how natural to follow the example of Samuel and sacrifice to Yahweh. A very instructive lesson, by the way, for these gospel times, just so our need of an atonement is the very first of our needs. Yeah. Everybody can say amen to that. Amen. The nature of God's law, the example of God's servants, the enmity of the world and Satan combine to teach us this truth. So Funkin' Wagnall's commentary was right, guys. Yeah. However, it was actually the text of Ezra and Nehemiah that gave them the opportunity to come to this conclusion. The work of God begins at the altar. Yeah. yeah this is where your thoughts, your priorities, your prerogatives die so that you may take on the prerogatives of Adonai. Yeah. The chief aim of the Bible is to produce Israel as a prince with God. Hey, what is the chief aim of the Bible? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Any system of belief that attempts to be participants in the blessings of Adonai without partaking in the chief aim of Adonai, well, 
They are destined to be excluded from the plans of God with that kind of mentality. Yeah, look at our next slide titled, But Why Can't I Be a Part? Why? <laughs> Why? Why? Well, consider these facts from the exiles from the 12 tribes. They had a command from God and from the king. Their hearts were stirred by God. They participated at the altar. They got the first step right. And they had exclusivity, meaning no other gods were involved. No third parties. Compare that to the Gentile idolaters. They had no command. They had no stirring of heart, their hearts by God. They had no participation at the altar. So how could they even begin? They missed the first step. And they certainly had no exclusivity because they worshipped everything under the sun. They had third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth parties. And God would have none of it. Now, our hope is that each of you has a clear view of this important principle on both a macro, say macro, macro, and micro scale. Micro. 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 On the macro scale, no person will be truly effective in God's redemptive story without understanding and participating in his aim, oh, namely the transformation of Israel into a prince with Adonai. On the micro scale... <laughs> No one should be included in the God-given ministry that flows from your home without a command from God. That's right. A stirring of the heart, of your heart by God, and joint participation in the altar of God, and most of all, exclusivity with God. Thanks, that's good. Listen, everyone who is born of God, they must have something. They must have their own Sinai moment of theophany. Yes. The nation of Israel repetitively, not once, but repetitively, experienced the revelation of Adonai through his Torah. And so must every single believer if they are to be transformed into the image of Christ. See, our next slide is from Ezra 5, the larger Sinai picture. It's been some time, but we want to refresh your memory. It says, now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem. In the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. This should immediately draw your mind back to Sinai, where God is over them like a canopy. Verse 2, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josedad, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. See, we have prophets actively partnering with God and the people, and they're being aided in this supernatural work, just like the first time they received the law. Number five, but the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews. Right. Amen. Look, there's beautiful imagery here where there's a feast up on a mountain. Well, now we have elders that are laboring here, and God's presence is on them, watching them and protecting them. So the book of Ezra and Nehemiah reveals Adonai again reigning over the people of Israel, again aiding the people of Israel through the prophets, and Again, watching over the elders of Israel. The Lord's commitment to the continual deliverance and transformation of his people, well, it's firm, it's steadfast, it's unchanging. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah helps to display that, and the Newer Testament builds upon it. That being said, like all supernatural birthing processes, it is a difficult journey to rule and reign with Adonai. There are many ups and downs in the historical record of Israel. 
Similarly, this is true in the life of any genuine believer. So you'll remember this next slide. And every mother in the room will remember this chart very well. What we see on the bottom of the slide are uterine contractions. The up and down wave measures the intensity of the contraction, or you can call it the labor pain. As the uterus contracts, you can see the son's heart rate is affected at the top. This puts a lot of pressure on the newborn in the womb, and the heart rate of the son declines as the uterus contracts, and it begins to be very intense. Now, ironically, it is the contractions that signal the birthing of a child. Wait, what signals the birthing of a child? Contractions. Labor pains. And yet... When Israel goes through contractions, this becomes a sign for many that they are dead. That is sad. And the book of Ezra Nehemiah illustrates the enduring promise of Adonai to supernaturally birth the prince with God through these periods of contraction and expansion. So lately in our community, we've been examining the birthing of great men. Men that make others great by sharing in the heroic cup of the king. Amen! Nehemiah serves as an excellent prototype of all that each of us endeavor to be. Consider this next slide with us. Nehemiah the cupbearer. Extra-biblical references that mention the office of cupbearer in the Persian court have revealed that this was a position second only in authority to the king. Well, come on, guys. <coughs> Nehemiah was not only the chief treasurer and the keeper of the king's signet ring, but he also tasted the king's food to make sure no one had poisoned it. Yeah. Look at this last quote on the bottom of the slide. The cupbearer in later Achaemenid times was to exercise even more influence than the commander-in-chief. Wow. Yeah. <coughs> So the very man whose name means comfort of Yahweh was in a position that shared a cup with the king. This makes him the ideal prototype for every man who hopes to be the agency of Yahweh's comfort on earth to the community of God. It's fascinating that the cupbearer exercised more influence in the kingdom than the king himself. Perhaps this has bearing on John 14 picking up in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Saints, like Nehemiah before us, we each have the opportunity to share in the cup of the king. This means that we take upon ourselves his priorities, his methods, and his sacrifices. He then gives us his authority just like Nehemiah who bore his signet ring within the kingdom to accomplish the king's will. So Nehemiah was not the first person to embark on Adonai's priorities for Israel. He was near the end of a long string of men that were effectively used by Adonai. This too is highly analogous to both you and me. Nothing has originated with us, but nevertheless, we each have the high privilege of contributing something to the kingdom of God with our lives. So let's take a look at some historical facts of importance. 
chapter 2 of Nehemiah is happening almost exactly 70 years after the completion of the temple in 516 B.C. Chapter 2 of Nehemiah is happening almost 100 years after the first return from exile under Zerubbabel in 539 8 B.C. So Nehemiah was a man that came to complete what other men had begun nearly a century before him. He surveyed the state of Jerusalem and God's people and contributed what was still lacking. Additionally, Nehemiah was not the end or the final aim of Adonai's plan. There would be generations coming after him that his work put on better footing. Perhaps each of us would be benefited by imitating this kind of attitude. We should endeavor to build upon what has already begun. And we should make it our goal to leave the coming generations in a stronger position after we're gone. So speaking of imitating Nehemiah, look at our next slide, and we're going to talk about Nehemiah's prayer life. This is from Dig's Annotated Reference Bible. I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. See the references highlighted in green, or if you're colorblind, the references in parentheses. His request to God had been that he would put it into the king's heart to give him favor. Now he asked the ruler to let him return to the city of his fathers so he could build it. See Nehemiah 2.5. He was answered by both God and man. So Nehemiah was a man of both prayer and action. It is common to find men who pray but do not act. Or act but do not pray. Nehemiah is a man that never seems to fail to both pray and then act. Now, one of the things that we glean from studying his example is the necessity of prayerful consideration that is then followed immediately by bold and courageous action. You ready to see an example? Yeah. 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 This is from Nehemiah 2, verse 8. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel. By the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. Mm -hmm. See, Nehemiah is portrayed in the midst of difficulty and distress regularly, frequently. However, the continual refrain, the gracious hand of my God was on me, it's always present to let you know the secret to his overcoming attitude. See, this had been so true of Ezra. You may remember this slide that we're pulling up for you now. We're intentionally bouncing back and forth between Nehemiah and Ezra so that you will see their similarities. The slide's titled, The Gracious Hand of God. You can see in Ezra 7, he mentions that the gracious hand of God is on him. In Ezra 8, because the gracious hand of our God was on us. In Ezra 8 again, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. Both Ezra and Nehemiah were successful in their work precisely because of their reverence for Adonai. Ezra studied and taught. Nehemiah prayed and then acted. The gracious hand of God was upon them both because of their actions. In fact, check out Nehemiah 2, 17 through 18. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Yep. 
Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. The gracious hand of God is on the man who is prayerful with the intention of acting. It makes no difference whether the gates and stone are burned with fire or just surrounded by enemies. Nehemiah demonstrates the courage that prayer and action create in a man. When they work properly together, you can know that the gracious hand of Adonai is upon you. Prayer with the intention of action lets you know that the gracious hand of God is upon you. Prayer as a means of avoiding action is just thinly cloaked cowardice. And action without prayer is worse. It's hubris. We want to pray, discern God's will, and act immediately. Somebody say immediately. Immediately. That's because things have been decreed that God indeed wants done. We become aware of the decrees through study, like Ezra, and through prayer, just like Nehemiah, and action like both men displayed. You'll remember this next slide, which decree? We studied this together and we walked you through these decrees and showed you that the decree of Nehemiah 2 was the last one during the reign of Artaxerxes Longimanus to rebuild the city and the wall with the trench. Like us, Nehemiah probably recognized the importance of the decree issued by Artaxerxes Longimanus from reading Daniel chapter 9. Yeah! Back in Jeremiah's time, the decree to burn the city with fire went out. But in Nehemiah's time, a decree to rebuild the city was issued. Nehemiah's prayerful concern was followed up by courageous action. Praise God for that. His actions seemed to have set the prophetic timeline discussed in Daniel 9 into motion. But that is a huge discussion for another night. Yeah. So tonight we wanted to remind you of the building materials that Nehemiah was given to work with. Perhaps you will remember these moving slides, these pictures from the wall of Jerusalem. So if you look at the stone on the left, you see charred marks. This would be from the Babylonian siege and will help you get a grasp of the illusion of the first time of what Ezra and Nehemiah were looking at as they begin to rebuild. Let's take our next one. And our next one. So obviously this is ash. But as you put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes, you have to think about the faithfulness of Adonai as they're standing at this ash and everyone in the world is doubting that it can be rebuilt. It makes us think of Nehemiah 4. What does the prophet Isaiah say that you give the Lord and he gives you in return? He will give you beauty when you give him ashes. Nehemiah took ashes, offered them to the Lord, and the Lord gave him a beautiful place in history. He completed what he started. He started with what no one else would want to build with, and he got it done. So as we leave the slide on the screen, I'm going to read to you from Nehemiah 4, 1 through 2. When Sambal had heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry. 
and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble <coughs> burned as they are? Yeah. See, Nehemiah was a man that allowed the question to be asked. He allowed for these questions to be asked, surrounded by ash. Will they restore their wall? Can they bring these stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And then he answered each of those questions. He answered them with his actions by rebuilding the wall. Oh, yeah. Somebody say amen. Amen. Thanks. When we say this is highly instructive for us, yeah. we mean too much of our time is spent trying to negotiate our way through to verbally answer the taunts of the enemy when we should just get to work and answer it by building the wall. Amen. It seems that the ruined state of the building materials and the ever-growing opposition to the work well, it never did something. It never ruined the attitude of Nehemiah. Oh, yeah. Consider the mounting opposition in this next slide. You may have the book of James floating through your mind right now. I will show you my faith by what I do, not the eloquence of my words. <laughs> the situation surrounding Nehemiah, we summarized on a slide some weeks ago called That Ex Escalated Quickly. You can see in Nehemiah 2.10 that Sanballat the Horonite. Jim, did I get that right? The Horonite? Did you want to correct it? No, Horonite. Okay, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official are working together. Then in Nehemiah 2.19, we see Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arabs. Somebody say they're multiplying. They're multiplying. They put water on these gremlins after midnight, and the result <laughs> is that by Nehemiah 4, we have Samballot, his associates, the army of Samaria, and Tobiah the Ammonite. As we move through chapter 4, the list just keeps growing. <coughs> Samballot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the men of Ashdod. See, it's very important to understand that when you have been given ashes to work with, but a promise from heaven, all of the enemies will gather to try to stop you. Because if you are able to do what God says must be done, it's a testimony that the God of Israel still cares for his people. Amen. See, you know that they got the work done anyway. But it's important to review what happened while they were doing the work because the same thing happens in your lives. At the same time the external opposition was reaching its zenith, the internal opposition also began to peak. You guys will remember this slide. Internal conflict times 10. Anybody ever faced internal conflict times 10? Yes. In Nehemiah 4.12, then the Jews who lived near them came and told us, Ten times over. Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Wherever you turn, they will attack us. See, it's not enough that they're not helping in the work. They're also trying to stop those that are. I can't tell you how familiar that feeling is. See, those internal fears compounded, and they begin to sound like, well, the strength of the laborers is giving out. I'm not strong enough to complete this. Or there is just so much rubble. Yep. Where do we start? I don't know where to start. 
We cannot rebuild. We don't know how to do this. Wherever we turn, they will attack us. Guys, there were so many reasons that these internal conflicts spoke with such a loud voice. One of them is the mixed nature of many alliances within the people. Yeah. You'll remember this slide. Tobiah on the bottom right of the screen, but we discovered something as we went through the text. Tobiah's son was married to the daughter of all-star wall builders. And Tobiah himself was married to the daughter of Shechaniah, the son of a verified Israelite clan head. Wow. One of the many lessons of Ezra Nehemiah is that opposition never comes conveniently through a solitary source, packaged up real nice right there where you can see it. It is always mounted from both external and internal sources. In the days of Moses, Egypt wanted to kill Moses. And sometimes the rabble within Israel wanted to do the same thing. Oh, what about the days of Samson? In those days, the Philistines wanted to kill Samson, and sometimes his own people tied him up for them. Yeah. Nehemiah was not dissuaded by the external opposition, and he did not give into or sympathize with the internal opposition. He stayed on task and honored the commission of the king that he trusted above all. Any man that is called of God will have to learn to imitate this kind of courageous obedience. Amen. It is only found in trusting the one who called you. You'll remember this slide on amen. When you say amen, it carries many meanings, like confirm, support, true, faithful, strong, or may this prayer come true, believe, train, foster father, artist, skilled workman, right hand, verified, truth, faithful, truly, and of course, faith. Now, if any believer is going to truly speak the amen, then he will have to have to prayerfully put into action the courageous deeds of Nehemiah. On, right. All too often, the builder must work while men hurl insults in the face of the builders. However, when you gave the solemn amen and shared the cup of the king, this kind of opposition should be endured without endangering your commitment to the completion of the task. Yeah. Oh, come on. The Apostle Paul commented on this subject. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Somebody say hallelujah to that. Hallelujah. Our God is faithful. And it goes on and says, and so through him, the amen is spoken by us. Us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set a seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Thanks, when you're considering this, we're in a time when macho bravado is often little more than a hollow chest thumping. It's just an outward facade. It is important that we show ourselves to be men, even men of God. That when we say amen, we are committing in faith, in skilled work, in training, in labor to finish the work that we are commissioned to complete. This is especially true in the face of internal and external opposition. Tisdale, are you ready for one of my favorite slides? Absolutely. Hillel said in the Pirakea vote, in a place in which there are no men, try 
to act like a man. Amen. There are indeed many males in this room, and we are proud to be here with you. The number of actual biblical men in the room is yet to be determined. This is because men do not merely start a great work for Christ, but they also are defined by bringing it into completion. We pray that at the end of this race, you will be a man, even a biblical man of God like Nehemiah. You see, Nehemiah's journey walked through every season and feast of Israel. This is a profound lesson in and of itself. We want to refresh your memory with this slide. Nehemiah leaves Susa in Nisan, probably towards the middle or close of the month, for his preparations must have taken him some time. This is just after Passover. He would be likely to be nearly three months on his journey, and would thus reach Jerusalem about the middle of July, say July 15th. His journey occurred during the time of Pentecost. He then rested three days, surveyed the wall, laid his plan before the nobles, arranged the working parties, and set to work. These three days were his resetting before the reestablishment of the strength of the nation. It was his object to hasten matters as much as possible, and he may well have commenced the rebuilding within 10 days of his arrival. 52 days from July 25th would bring him to September 15th, which corresponds as nearly as may be to the 25th of Elul. Elul is the sixth month and is a time of reflection prior to the full atonement and restoration of the nation of Israel that occurs in the seventh month, which is Tishri, the month we are in now, which features the trumpet call in Yom Teruah, atonement on Yom Kippur, and tabernacles in the Feast of Sukkot. Which we are also in right now. So in every season and at all times, Nehemiah displayed biblical masculinity. His journey touched on every area of God's redemptive plan for Israel. This is far more than many ministers can say. Yeah. Let's take a look at another slide to put the symbology of Nehemiah's journey into perspective for you. You guys know the seven annual feasts, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Pentecost, Trumpets, Atonement, and Tabernacles. Well, this slide, you can see that these perfectly correlate to the seven promises that we find in Exodus chapter 6. I will bring you out from under the yoke. I will free you from being slaves. I will redeem you. I will take you as my own. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land, and I will give to you. We want to suggest to you that further research into Nehemiah's journey is definitely warranted. At every turn, he displayed faithful obedience in the midst of perilous circumstances. This in and of itself is an affirmation that each corresponding promise associated with the feasts of Israel were indeed being reaffirmed through the journey of Nehemiah. Pause on that for a second. Imagine that you are in the historical setting and every year you're going through these feasts but they've become somewhat hollow for you because you're not sure that the promise associated with them still holds true for you. And then comes the work of Ezra and the work of Nehemiah and you see 
that through each one of the feasts, they stay building, they stay on track, they stay completely committed, given ashes to work with, but produce the city of God on earth. And it is reestablished in your heart that the feasts that were true are still true and will be true in the future. But because of that, in other words, to put it plainly, Nehemiah's life is proof that Adonai is still committed to each and every promise that he has made to the nation. Yeah. Come on. So speaking of promises and ongoing covenants, perhaps you may remember this slide about covenantal structure. The material in 9.5b through 10.39 follows the normal covenant form used in the ancient Near East. It has a preamble, 9.5b through 6, historical prologue, 9.7 through 37, acceptance of the covenant, 9.38 through 10.29, and the stipulations, 10.30 through 39. Ezra and Nehemiah led the people into a renewal of the covenant. This was true even though the nation's inability to perform the obligations of the covenant were readily admitted by them. It seems that the nation was entirely aware that they could not save themselves through Torah obedience. However, they would endeavor to be Torah obedient while they awaited salvation from Yahweh. To that note, Psalm 119, verse 166 says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. And, somebody say and. And! And I follow your commands. In the last period of biblical history, in the Older Testament, it was well established that salvation and Torah keeping were two separate issues. The Pauline epistles, they address a specific corruption in that generation's approach to the Torah. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah, however, clearly displayed dependence on the loving kindness and mercy of Adonai for salvation, while they also kept the commands. They never display a work-based salvation. So this garbage that you have heard all of your life based on 2,000 years of preaching and unfortunately have perpetuated by your own mouth is totally untrue. The Older Testament has never taught a works-based salvation, right. and Judaism did not endorse a works-based salvation. Paul was specifically addressing a corruption in the approach to Torah that was a works-based salvation. Ooh, that's good. But that is not what Ezra and Nehemiah display. In fact, eight times in Ezra and Nehemiah, the chesed of God is referred to. It's referred to as his loving kindness, his steadfastness, his gentle mercies, his loving care for the nation that could not save themselves if they would simply be obedient in all of their efforts towards his command. The renewal of the covenant was accompanied by acknowledgement of the nation's failure to keep the covenant. Do you all remember that? The constant appeal is to the chesed of Adonai and never to the works of ritualistic or legalistic righteousness. The Older Testament simply does not and never has taught that. Again... Paul addressed that issue because of a specific corruption of the truth that was present during his period in history in the first century. 
But the issue did not define biblical or historic Judaism prior to the first century. Let's take a look at this next slide. We also discovered that the renewal of the covenant was accompanied with mercy. In Nehemiah 9.17, it says, The gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. In 9.27, according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors. In Nehemiah 9.28, yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Do you hear it's in the plural too? Yeah. Nehemiah 9.31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. The original covenant was marked by mercy. And so was the act of renewal in Nehemiah and Ezra's day. If you have not gleaned anything from the last several years of our teaching, we hope that you at least gleaned the truth illustrated on. on this slide and the next one. on. So that's, that's a key. Yeah. This next slide, you're going to find a key to understanding this. Yeah. Are you ready? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Are you ready? Yes! You have learned this before, but make tonight the night that you re-wet this truth in your soul. Yes, Lord. Not forsaken. Ezra 9.9 says, For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 17 goes on to talk about how they refused to obey. They weren't mindful of the wonders that he performed among them. All of these things had happened, but look, God, you are a God ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Amen. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. Yet in your great mercies, you did not forsake them oh. in the wilderness. Nehemiah 9.31 also says it. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and a merciful God. All right, pay attention to this next part. It's much deeper and much better than you think that it is at first glance. So guys, anytime you hear a teacher expounding on concepts like the divorce of Israel, the replacement of Israel, or the redefinition of what exactly Israel is today. Please, we're begging you, take out your notebook and refer to this slide right here. Amen. Even more important and even deeper than you might have considered before. This slide is referring to the entire journey of Israel up to and through the last period in biblical history prior to the arrival of the Messiah. Okay, so hold there. Any statement about a divorce, any statement about discipline, any statement about rejection occurred before the, the data on this slide. This is the last period in biblical history prior to Messiah. It is the final 
word on how Israel's relationship with God has been maintained. If Hosea said something, if Jeremiah said something, if any prophet said something that could be taken to mean Israel was rejected, Ezra and Nehemiah by the ninth chapter have settled the issue forever. You did not forsake us. You can see that because this text in Nehemiah comes last after any other text that might have hinted or inferred at divorce, replacement, or redefinition, this text right here comes after it. And it says, no, God did not forsake his nation Israel. So, as simply as we possibly can put it for you, the last word on Israel in all of the Older Testament is that God has not ever forsaken Israel in any period of their history. Is, is that definitive enough? Yes. Yes. Have you ever heard that before? No. This is a golden gem that you should write somewhere. Yeah. So as we come to a close of our review and prepare to challenge you with consideration of your next actions, there's still a few more slides that we have to mention because they're that good. Yeah. Let's take our next one. Let's talk about two witnesses. You remember in Nehemiah 4, 1 through 3, it says, Now when Sambalat heard that, they were, that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned Burned ones at that. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Fast forward. So everybody picked up there with what Peyton just read. How many negative witnesses do we have? Two. Two. So now we're in Nehemiah 12, 31. When I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south. Ezra the scribe went before them. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. And I, being Nehemiah, followed them with half of the people. So we see two witnesses in both instances, but we know what the end result was. We simply wanted to glorify Adonai for this great FU moment. This faith unifying moment is the ultimate answer to the critique of the critics. They literally stood the leaders of the nation on top of the wall that was not supposed to be able to sport a fox, at least in the estimation of the enemies of Israel. Saints, are you catching a theme in Ezra and Nehemiah? The enemy will always taunt from the inside and from the outside. But when we unify in faith, we can stand in the victories that Christ has given us because of action in response to godly prayer. They stood up and walked around on what God had done and pointed so that the whole world could see God did this and it was by His hand. Now we want to revisit a slide that we have deemed old faithful affectionately. Guys, when you're looking at this process... This is the process of the enemy opposing and God doing it anyway and them getting the results in it. 
You should have a growing appreciation for the restoration of the heart of the nation of Israel at the altar of God in Zerubbabel's way. Do you understand the significance of this now? It is starting that engine again at the altar of God that is beginning this process. Should also have a growing appreciation for the restoration of the soul of the nation of Israel in the teachings and the reforms of Ezra's way that in many ways reflects Moses. Should also have a growing appreciation for the restoration of the strength of nation, nation of Israel in the building of Nehemiah's wall. Now, while you're looking at the slide and you're glorifying God for all that he's done, realize that this slide covers a process that took more than 130 years. And then ask yourself, how long will you maintain the faith that looks like a faith of Abraham or Ezra and Nehemiah? Three weeks? 13 months? This took 130 years. Come on. But the work was completed because the men did not back away from what God had said. Amen. True faith plays out over decades, centuries, and even millennia. It requires you to believe even when the evidence on the ground seems to contradict what you heard from the heavens. You're never truly alone in the process because Adonai is committed to the work that he has announced in advance. Remember, there are no less than seven men that are responsible for leading the restorative events in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Let's take a look at our next slide. We see seven anointed men involved in this process. We have Zerubbabel in the first wave. He's a governor. We have Joshua in the first wave. He's a high priest. We have Haggai, the prophet. Zechariah, the prophet in the first wave. Then we get Ezra, the priest and scribe. Then we see Nehemiah, the governor, arrive on the scene. And they are both aided. Ezra and Nehemiah are aided by Malachi, the prophet. You see, much like Elijah, who thought he was the last of the faithful. Ever felt like that in your workplace? He thought he was the last of the faithful. We often think that Adonai's plan depends on our faithfulness alone. This is demonstrably false in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. There is always a team of men working to achieve the aims of Adonai in every generation. Each of us should make it our ambition to discover the other teammates and show loyalty unto life and fidelity unto death to both the call and our teammates. Somebody say amen! amen. Your work will only be successful when you are working in conjunction with the other members of the body of Christ. The only individual aspect of the calling is that you are held individually responsible for being faithful to the team and the calling. Wow. Yes! That's good. It is comforting to know that every act of faithfulness will be remembered. Come on. Our next slide. Remember me. Nehemiah 5.19 said... Remember me with favor, oh my God, for all I have done for this people. Nehemiah again, three times in Nehemiah 13. The first occurring in verse 14. Remember me for this, oh my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Then again in verse 22. Remember me for this also, oh my God, 
and show mercy to me according to your great love. And finally, as the capstone of the book of Ezra Nehemiah, the last verse says, Remember me with favor, O oh my God. Nehemiah's name is written on Malachi's scroll. Come on! Remember it. Yes. Along with the team of men who feared the Lord. We pray tonight that your name <coughs> will appear on such a list alongside those who engaged in the great work of God at the risk of their own lives. Amen. Yeah. Amen. So do you guys remember that we entered into a time of careful thought and examination on July 5th of this year? Yeah. Yep. It was a date that we marked in time. It was to prepare us for the upcoming conference. Here's what we said verbatim on that evening. It comes from Haggai 2, and we're going to pick up in 18. From this day on, from the 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundations of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree, have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. <coughs> Haggai showed up in the sixth month and began prophesying. This day is the ninth month and the 24th day. It's a marker in time. Three months and 24 days of careful examination and reprioritization made all the difference in eternity. Church, what would happen if we meditated on this concept from now until October when the One Association meeting is held? Do you think that you might be able to identify and correct mission drift and self-set priorities? We challenge you to take a serious look at it because it will make all the difference in your eternity. We want you to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. That can only happen if you complete what you started. You will only complete what you started if you are daily examining your progress, repenting, and asking for heaven's help in strengthening your hand. Saints, wasn't this a monumental event? Yes. yes. We trust that you have benefited by this time marker. Absolutely. You should be able to look back and see that you have made serious adjustments, gained new revelation, and strengthened your commitment. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if that's not true, then you're dead while you sit here pretending to be alive. I don't know where you're at while the rest of us were praying, repenting, and being transformed. But we know that for almost everyone in the room, that it's true. You've made serious adjustments. So we want to use the remaining time to benefit those who will come after us. We're going to challenge you with a specific question. Are you ready for it? Yes. yes. Are you sure that you're ready for it? Yes. yes. Who will be the next Nehemiah? Oh, come on. I will. I will. Yeah. So let's look at Ezekiel 22 and verse 30. And by the way, Marlon was the only man in this room that correctly committed himself to the position. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. See, Adonai sought a man who would stand in the breached wall of the nation 
The God of Israel wanted to spare his people the judgment that was going to befall them. And yet no man appeared to turn the wrath of God away from the people. No man appeared to turn the people from the power of Satan to the kingdom of light. No man appeared to stand in the breach. You may be thinking in this girlish Sunday school voice, only Jesus could do that. But you would be wrong. <laughs> Let's look at Psalm 106 together. In verse 23. Therefore he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Come on. That's good. Moses was a man, flawed, frail, but full of faith. Yes! He stood in the breach because he rose to the call of God and boldly acted to lead his people towards redemption. Come on. You are called and chosen men. It is your duty to be faithful to the high call of God and prove it by standing in the breach and working for the redemption of God's people. Moses and Nehemiah answered the call of God in their generation, and so must you. Come on. Who will be the next Nehemiah? Kings chapter 11 verse 27 together. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the millow and closed up the breach of the city of David his father. So in the days of Jeroboam rebellion was spreading and idolatrous practices were becoming the normative behavior of all the masses. Solomon looked at all that his father David had done. But he didn't stop there. He began to add to it. He found low places in the wall and strengthened them for the sake of the people and the kingdom. Solomon and Nehemiah answered the call of God in their time, and so must you. So the question is, who will be the next Nehemiah?
that we could be included in this kind of majestic work on behalf of God's people Israel. It was foreshadowed through men like Ittai, and it came to reality in men like Titus who were Gentiles but joined in the work to close the breaches in the wall. Now, however, the question still remains. In this room, not in Acts 15, not in Amos, but in this room, who will be the next Nehemiah? I will! Let's smack your mezuzahs around a little bit. (laughs) Isaiah 58, verse 11. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters did not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the cities to dwell in. Did you honestly think that you could drink of the life-giving water without doing the work that accompanies it? Did you drink of the water? Yes. Did you drink of the water? Yes. Then how can you not become a repairer of the breach in the wall? If you are participating in the blessings of God, then you must join in the work of God. Who will be the next Nehemiah? I will! Now that we have committed you to the only right position, can you let your security come before the sacred? No! Can you let your mourning outweigh your joy? No! Can you participate in muddied alliances? No! Can you do this work alone as a singular superstar? No! Do you expect to do this work without insults thrown in your face? No! Can you do this without daily interaction in the Tanakh? No! Can you do this work relying on your own strength? No! Well, very well then. We know what not to do. Let's look at what we must do. You guys ready for what we must do? Yes! We will continually go to the altar first and entreat the Almighty to incline our hearts towards His will as outlined in the law. Come on! We do this daily with the living and active sword that is the Word of God, just as Hebrews 4.12 says, as well as Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 29. We will continually let the prophets anguish our souls, as Isaiah 38, 15 through 19 says, so that we can eliminate our priorities and take on the Lord's. This will produce praise and faithfulness in our generations. Oh, come on. We said heart. We said soul. You know what is next. We will utilize every ounce of our God-given strength to accomplish the will of Adonai, as Psalm 18 says. Finally, we will trust the same spirit who began this work in us to stir us unto its completion. Philippians 1.6 Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. When the temple stalled, They were stirred again, and the temple was finished. 
when the wall was under attack from without an internal conflict within the reading of the Torah and the prayer of the men stirred them again and the wall was completed. We can thank the book of Ezra and Nehemiah for teaching us these things. Do you know what it's time for now? It's time to pray with the intention of courageous action that will follow your prayer. Because church, you are the next Nehemiah. And a whole generation depends upon it. Would you stand to your feet? Hey, we're about to pray, but I want you to hear the last few words that these pastors said because it encapsulates things in such a beautiful way. What we must do. Hear it again. We will continually go to the altar first. Somebody say altar first. Altar first. And entreat the Almighty to incline our hearts towards His will as outlined in the law. We do this daily and with the living and active sword that the Word of God is. We will continually let the prophets anguish our souls, as Isaiah 38 says, so that we can eliminate our priorities. Let's make that a little bit more personal since we're closing. Say, eliminate my priorities. Eliminate my priorities. And take on the Lord's priorities. Take on the Lord's priorities. This, in fact, church, will produce faith, praise and faithfulness in our generation. We will utilize every ounce of our God-given strength to accomplish the will of Adonai. Because we're going to put our trust, our faith, our hope, our action in the same spirit who began this work. Because he will bring it about just like God did and just like these book, this book that we've studied. We saw the completion of the wall. We saw the completion of an entire process that caused a spirit soul and strength of a nation to come about and be rebirthed in their day and it's time for us to do the same thing in our day. Amen. Amen. As we begin to pray, let your hearts come before his presence with an expectation that he is forming us into men like Nehemiah. We're going to begin at the altar. We'll present our hearts before him in that fashion and we will expect that he will take ashes and make it something beautiful. Mighty King, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that moves within us. Father, we bring before you right now our heart, mind, will, and emotions. Lord, we put it here in your presence and at your altar. Lord, we say burn up in us right now every bit of our own ambition, our strength, what we desire to use on our own outside of you and outside of this body. Lord, let ourselves be crucified here right here in your presence and on your altar. Lord, that your blood may be sprinkled upon our hearts and minds, cleansing us from a guilty conscience and cleansing us from guilty deeds. Lord, we lift up our hands to you and we say, Lord, sprinkle upon them your blood that sanctifies them. Set them apart for your deeds and your deeds only. Lord, our feet as well. May they only obey the direction of your spirit and the leading and counsel of your word. And we say, Lord, as we stare here in your presence at our sin, Lord, let it be dead. Let it be dead and put to rest. Lord, that we would stand before you as new, 
resurrected and transformed sons and daughters of your name. Lord, we see in your labor a pure reflection of your image within who we are. Let your spirit lead us, mighty King. Let your bread feed us and let us partner with your will on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we look to your throne right now. We say that you are great and you are glorious. You are seated above high, above every other authority in heaven and on earth. It is for your namesake. It is for your glory appearing here on earth, Lord, that our lives are aimed at. Lord, and let your name and your name be the one that is glorified in all the deeds that we commit to do right now in your name. Lord, with a heart that is committed and we are intent and ready to now act, we all lift our voices and we say in one accord, Amen. Amen. Amen.